everyone, and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Optimize and hosted by me, Andy Haslam. This season, we'll be speaking with the key decision makers who reap the benefits and gain the most value from effective risk management. We'll be exploring their perceptions, interactions, and experiences, as well as understanding what they personally have found to be the most rewarding and beneficial aspects that the discipline has to offer. We hope these conversations provoke thought and discussion amongst both risk and non-risk professionals to lift the lid on how its effective delivery can add real value to the roles of the beneficiaries. So without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Riskologists. I'm your host, Andy Haslam, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Aid Orchard. So Aid, welcome to Riskologists. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Excellent. Um, so we always ask this of our guests at the beginning of it, you know, how's your podcast game? Have you done anything like this before? Podcast never. So this is the this is the first experience I've had of a podcast. I have done plenty of other kinds of speaking, public speaking and interviews. So I'm pretty comfortable with that, but this will be my first. So I'm very much uh, looking forward to the process. Awesome. I think you'll nail it anyway. There's no problem there. Um, as always, we'd like to kick things off with a bit of a journey to date. So, you know, how you started in your career, where it's taken you in a bit of a timeline to up to this very point of recording the podcast today. So fire away. No, thank you. So uh, for me, my start point was um, I, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to fly an aeroplane. So that's always quite nice knowing from a from a really early age what you want to do quite clearly. Getting there was always going to be an interesting one, though, because um, flying airplanes can can be challenging in as much as there are things outside of your control. And we'll come on to uh, that as we're talking about risk, things that you can control and therefore put barriers in place for and things that you can't. So in my case, uh, I didn't have any control over whether I was medically fit at that point. Uh, did I or didn't I have some kind of um, heart condition or otherwise? Thankfully, I didn't. So I ended up joining the Royal Navy and joined the fleet air arm, um, went through a flying training system and all the way along that point, uh, people um, helping and guiding, always useful. Uh, and I ended up flying an airplane called the Sea Harrier. I spent about 10 years flying uh, frontline off the aircraft carriers uh, in the mid, sorry, early 90s, all the way through the 90s, in fact. Um, went out to the US for the first of three jobs out in the US. Uh, at that stage, I was a, a fairly experienced uh, Harrier pilot. And I was also a warfare instructor. So I would teach people how to do air combat, um, use the weaponry of the aircraft and the radar system and so on, and became a little bit of a radar and missile system specialist. Went to the US, um, more of that later when we talk about operational risk management. Came back, became a squadron commander, um, went to another one of the conflict zones that were prevalent all the way through the 90s. So that was um, focused around um, Iraq and Afghanistan at that point, uh, and then into higher management then. So uh, into another US job uh, where I was working in the Pentagon for three years uh, doing US-UK carrier policy where we uh, made an agreement on how we were going to bring our new aircraft carriers into service and then back to um, commander base so I commanded the naval air station down in Coldrose um, in Cornwall and really really enjoyed having that opportunity to sort of step up a level from being a squadron commander and now having the opportunity to run what is basically a small town uh, down in the southwestern tip of Cornwall and from there, back out to the US for a third time, where I became uh, much more involved in the project and program space now, which, which many of your listeners will be uh, much more familiar with. And I was 
in effect the program director for the F-35 Lightning operational test program. So a little bit of a culmination for me of, a, of an early career where I'd been involved in project work related to the F-35, which is currently in service in the UK and across the world. Um, and so I was the program director for that, which was fabulous. Came back into uh, poacher turn gamekeeper into the military aviation authority, where I was the head of operational regulation. And then um, I decided to leave the, the Navy a few years early. I think I'd, I'd got to a point where after 35 years, I was really looking for that next big challenge. And that's where I decided to do something very different. I didn't want to do something related to the military, but I wanted to do something that got me out of bed. And that's where I find myself now, up here in sunny Cumbria in the Western Lake District, where I am the senior responsible owner for one of three mega projects that they have here at Sellafield called the Replacement Analytical Project. So that brings us right up to date. It's an incredible timeline. It really is. It's, you know, uh, not many people I think have had those kind of experiences. So it's, uh, yeah, very interesting. Okay, right. So before we get stuck into the topic in a little bit more detail, and after all, this is obviously a risk management podcast, uh, just briefly, what has been your uh, experience with risk management over your career and what kind of relationship have you had with it? So early on in my career, the uh, the way in which we approach risk as a as a young Sea Harrier pilot in the 1980s was much less uh, mandated and and scripted in a way. It was very much about procedure and process, uh, use of checklists. So it was never something that I was consciously thinking this is risk management. I just knew that what I was doing was the correct way, for example, to get the aircraft started, to get the systems up and running, and be ready for flight. And before that. We had briefed the mission. We knew what the bounds of the mission were, what the plan was, as much as you are able uh, before something changes later. So in that respect, it was experiential, uh, but very much about making sure that we're in a safe place or a safe system to work. So that that was very much the start point. And it was only when later on and I, I ended up on my first exchange tour with the US that I saw risk explicitly stated as something that then became uh, a clear and obvious point of departure, if you like, for me to go, wow, that's a different way of approaching things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting to, like you say, that the, the things that are put in place based on experience and so on are all risk mitigations, but you don't see it as that. It's just what we have to do. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, all brilliant points there, right? So, as we kind of get into this, we'll, you know, look to introduce the topic a little bit. So, as everyone can already read from the, the, the title of the episode, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, operational risk management or ORM uh, and how it can be implemented across different industries. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail shortly, but from your perspective and for the benefit of our listeners who may not have heard of ORM before, uh, could you give us a bit of a brief overview of what ORM is and uh, why did you choose this topic in particular to get stuck into? Yeah, thank you. The um, The way I would imagine many who are who are listening to this would approach risk management is very much through the lens that I now look at it through project and, and program management. So if you think about some of the definitions, and there are many, uh, but if you think about some of the definitions, which is this idea of um, understanding risk, um, minimizing threats, uh, so that you can then maximize those opportunities that, that pop out the other end. And, and I, I do understand that. For me now, um, I'm forever changed because I almost start the day thinking it's not about risk management, it's about hazard identification. Because the only way you can effectively manage risk is to know what your hazards are in the first place. So it's interesting that we describe it as risk management, 
But the start point for risk management is identifying the hazard. So I wonder if we should call it hazard management. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, that's a that's a whole separate issue. So so for me, it was um, uh, an arrival in the US where explicitly the discussion about operational risk management was laid in front of me that made me realize whilst I had been perfectly able and competent at, at doing my job in the past, I had not been looking at a way of grading and thinking and managing risk in a way that I now found was initially maybe a little bit uh, clunky because it, it felt that way to start with. Lots of things are when you're trying it for the first time. But when you get into the flow, I realized that it was fundamentally going to change the way I approached uh, managing risk, which for me was much more focused on what is the hazard if something happens. Uh, so for me, that was a that was a big start point. So that was that was the operational risk management aspect that really woke me up. Mm -hmm. well, we'll go into to RM in a little bit uh, going forward, but um, as you've already touched on, you know, you've had an amazing career. That I'd, I'd easily say ninety nine percent of the people listening to this podcast right now can only try and imagine. Uh, but going back to your early stages of your aviation career, and did you um, have much interaction with risk management of, of any sort? And, you know, where did ORM really start to show up on your radar? You know, pardon the pun. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, operating from an aircraft carrier, it was a day after day after day discussion about the challenges and indeed the hazards, it was very easy to identify hazards operating from an aircraft carrier. For example, if you are flying at night from an aircraft carrier in a sea area, the first hazard you have is uh, smacking your head on the many pipes that are in and around the corridors as you move from different compartment to compartment as you get yourself prepared for flight, the mission briefing area, the um, toilet or the heads and bathrooms uh, before you go flying, then you go to the safety equipment section, then you go and put your immersion suit on and, 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 and. And as a six foot four individual, <laughs> the first hazard was um, cutting my head on the many, many pipes that are not made for six foot four people. Therefore, the risk mitigation strategies that you had to employ were for me um, an inbuilt thing called carrier stoop. I would constantly, when I was walking around the carrier, independent of what was above my head, have, a, have an automatic stoop because that mitigated all of the risks. Therefore, I, I was never going to have the uh, hazard materialize into an issue. So, so the point is, um, early on in my career, I realized that what I was doing was mitigating the hazard occurring by using a decent risk mitigation strategy. Now, when you get out on the deck of an aircraft carrier at night, the hazards are also very clear. It's dark. The deck is moving. It might be wet. It certainly would be windy because you're trying to get wind over the deck to help your launch process. So in all of these stages, process and experience from others, for example, the first time you ever did a night flying trip, you went out with somebody who had done a mission like that before mm. and quite literally followed them. Okay. If you go to an American aircraft carrier and you are a passenger in, a, in their passenger aircraft that arrives, Quite literally, you are met at the door of the aircraft on an active flight deck and they walk you by physically holding onto your arm to the place of safety. Because the only close to guaranteed way of reducing the threat of you being killed 
by aircraft movements on, an, on a, a US aircraft carrier, a much bigger space, and now ours are as well, is to say, you can't possibly wander off if I've got a hold of you. So in all, in all senses, what we were doing there was, was obviously in, in, enacting risk mitigation strategies, but it was much more hazard focused. And I think that for me, I realized when I went to the US that that's, that's what was happening to me. So, um, and from that point forward, I've applied those, those hazard first processes ever since. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating, and it, it almost seems that you kind of state in the obvious, really, that those are just, you know, matter of fact things, and you you don't think at the time that you are mitigating risk. Uh, but yeah, it's again another fascinating point. So let's get stuck into ORM a bit more. Uh, we've touched on the basics of what it is, of where it's kind of come from. Did you find uh, the advantages that it brought straight away, or did it, you know, take a while for for you to realize the benefit from it? And if so. Uh, what were the particular was a, a particular kind of epiphanal moment of when that clicked? Yeah, so for for me the um, it was an epiphany, mm. and my uh, first so I was an experienced warfare instructor on an aircraft I knew well. I'd had ten straight years pretty much of spending up to nine months a year away on an aircraft carrier. Um, the uh, I'd been in conflict zones, two different conflict zones at that point. So I was fairly seasoned in working in a operationally tense environment, a high risk environment, and was regularly um, managing those risks based upon the hazard that was likely, which in the case of my scenarios were quite catastrophic. Uh, these were loss of the aircraft due to the engine failing or being hit by a missile, for example. Um, so the hazard, was always my focus and therefore the risk mitigation strategies around it. When I went to the US, they had exactly the same challenges. They were um, a, a flying naval service as well. So I was on exchange with the US Navy um, and also the US Marine Corps, it was a combined test squadron. Yet their approach seemed at the time, and this is this classic, you're in the change cycle and something is new and it's exciting because you're in a, in, a, in a new country with a different team of people. And yet what was happening was it felt very clunky. It felt as though the process was overtaking the ability for us to get on with our business. So it, a, a few weeks in, it, it finally dawned on me that when we came to the first time I was doing um, an air combat mission, uh, a training combat mission, it felt as though we were, we were completely going off piste. Yet what we're actually were doing was the very thing that I've espoused all the way through this discussion so far which is not gazing at risks, because I do think there is a challenge that what, what we are as humans really keen to do is work really, really hard on, on populating and updating tables of, in this case, risk management strategies, but much less able to actually get on and resolve the very thing that is creating the hazard, which you can't often get rid of. The hazard will always be there in most cases, um, an aircraft crashing is the hazard. That, that's the whole point. And therefore, your barriers that you put in place are the things that you have control over. I mean, ultimately, you could not fly the airplane. It can never crash. But that's not the point. This is about you have to get airborne in the airplane if the mission is to go with your airplane to do something. So I think that for me was this, this process that I was being presented with that felt mechanistic, but actually turned my thinking on its head. And that was the sort of epiphany that we talk about. 
Oh, awesome. Thanks. Uh, looking at ORM in a bit more detail now for, for the benefit of everyone listening or watching, um, ORM is made up of four main principles and three levels. Um, by the way, these are all available online uh, and we'll, we'll hopefully try and put a link in in, uh, in the podcast description below to, to, to direct everybody towards that. Uh, the main principles being A, accept risks when benefits outweigh costs, uh, accept no unnecessary risks, anticipate and manage risk by planning and make risk decisions at the right level. Uh, do you have any particular principle that you find carries, you know, more importance or validity other, over the others? Yeah, m most definitely for me, whilst they're all valid because it's part of a, a way of thinking, is the last one. Um, in this current role in particular, but I've seen it all the way through my career, this idea of making risk decisions at the right level is the only way I've made it through 35 years in the Navy flying airplanes from aircraft carriers and in conflict zones, because if I had done what sometimes humans are uh, likely to do, which is be risk averse, whether it is because they are in an organization that um, would look poorly or punish them for stepping across a certain line uh, that doesn't engage with a workforce that, that gives them the sense that they are able to take sensible risk because they're never giving them the tools to understand what those risks are and therefore where the lines are. As one of my early instructors in aviation was really quite sage. Now remember this is very much along the lines of you could be going to war and therefore taking risk by default is the moment you stepped into the airplane because you're going into a conflict zone. So it's important for context because there are other industries where you wouldn't be thinking this way. So anyway, um, his comment to me was, if you want to be the high performer, you can only be a high performer by knowing where the line is by occasionally stepping over it. You can't know where the line is mm -hmm. if occasionally you don't step just across it and then come back and reset yourself to maximum performance. If you spend all your time a long, long, long way away from the line, you'll never be a high performer. Now, there are some businesses, and maybe the nuclear industry is a good example of that, where what you don't do is um, take that approach because what you're not trying to do, and we'll come onto this in how you approach operational risk management, operational risk management, is to work out how much time you have to know what the hazard is and work out what your strategies for managing risk associated with that hazard are. So um, I think it's actually quite important. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read out. So uh, there is freeware available online. Um, I know that the big four have, have started to push out work on operational risk management. It's no surprise that it's uh, it's come around to that now. Um, but there is there is um, freeware available. And, and for me, my reference point is the, the US Navy. Uh, and I'm just going to read out uh, from their freeware that's available, including there's an app which I have on my phone, uh, which again, everybody is freely available to download. They've, they've made it freely available globally. Um, ORM, Operational Risk Management, reduces or offsets risks by systematically identifying hazards. Notice that that's the first thing they mention, And assessing and controlling the associated risks, allowing decisions to be made that weigh risk against mission or task benefits. Now, many of your uh, listeners might be thinking, well, that's just turning sentences around, but it's not. It really isn't for me. Uh, that to me was the very point, which is 
using those four principles and uh, anticipating risks, sorry, accepting risks when benefits outweigh the cost. Mm -hmm. There are some businesses that approach risk as get rid of it all, get rid of the, the issue is um, a loss of a supplier, therefore uh, get rid of the, the risk entirely. Well, in some cases you can't. So th th there's got to be a way to say, well, we can't stifle ourselves by saying um, we're never going to do anything. We can't paralyze yourself with risk. You have to do something that that allows you to get past that. So, so for me, making risk decisions at the right level is the thing that unlocks businesses or in the case of my military background, um, the, the military opportunity that you have by not deferring upwards. Mm -hmm. If in doubt, in defer upwards that's not risk management that's that's passing risk up to choke point individuals who may be far far less able to make the right decision because you're at the point of delivery you are highly likely to be if not the best person one of the one of the most engaged people to make the right decision you might need some kind of supervisory uh, check or assessment of somebody that's, that's been there before but this, this, and I've seen it a lot, deferral upwards is to me where we, uh, we often fail in the way we say that we manage risks when actually what we're doing is stifling ourselves, paralyzing ourselves and passing it onwards to somebody else to deal with. Mm -hmm. Valuable, valuable insight in there, in that one, Aid. Um, so moving on to the levels of, of the LRM, we have in-depth, deliberate and time-critical risk management. Um, have your experiences meant that you've covered all of these uh, or again, do you have one that you've, you've had more interaction with other, over another? Yeah. So um, in the, all of them is the answer in depth is very much akin to either those things that you have a long lead time. In other words, this is the, we need to ensure, for example, in, in designing uh, a new vehicle, there will still be inherent risks ultimately when uh, a vehicle goes into production but the time associated with that means that you have opportunity to understand issues, uh, go through beta testing, uh, do prototyping, and so on and so on and so on. So, so for me, in depth is almost is almost daily business. I, I would suggest for many uh, many of your of your listeners. For me, where it steps into the, the benefits of ORM is in this deliberate space. The deliberate, and, and I'll refer back to my old life in in flying airplanes, is about the mission. Now, the mission will be preceded by some of that in-depth planning, um, long-term uh, safety and acceptance standards for the aircraft, all the things that I, I take for granted that the aircraft is fit to fly, it's not going to fall apart when I pull X amount of G, um, but the mission is where you get into deliberate ORM, and that is where I found it exceptionally useful, because this this could be, for example, um, uh, about... Uh, 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 an emergency procedure or a way in which we're going to deal once we cross the, the, the enemy lines, if you like. Um, that's the deliberate planning phase. And then, of course, the time critical risk management is uh, the, there's a phrase in the military, which is the enemy has a vote. You can plan a mission to the nth degree. And the moment you step across the border, something has changed. Mm -hmm. That's the time critical risk management. And the reason that people are best equipped to succeed in those environments is a combination of training and simple procedure to make sure that your aircraft is in a fit state when you cross that point of uh, crossing the enemy line, if you like. 
the in-depth activity that you've done over your career. So part of the, the fleet air arm in the Royal Navy's learning over decades is that in-depth element of it. In other words, that constant learning over decades. Mm -hmm. But really it's the mission planning that tends to mitigate the vast majority of the risks associated with the hazard. And the hazard is you don't get to the target. Mm. How do you not get to the target? Your airplane gets shot down. So the hazard is I don't get to the target because of my airplane shot down. And then you can work on that. And therefore, with all of that planned and prepped, the time critical element is down to human interaction at the right level. I can't defer that one upwards, can I? If, if there's four of me, if there's four of us in a formation of four airplanes, and I'm on my own in my airplane, and my radar warning receiver tells me I have, let's say, 20 seconds to react to a missile that's coming towards me. I can't call somebody else to, um, to let them know what's going on. That's about time critical risk management at the right level. Incredible stuff, incredible examples to, to, to bring into that. And um, I think I, I like the, 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 the way that it's leveled out there. So like you say the, the, the in-depth part of it is laying the basis of everything. Everything's kind of yeah. built upon uh, deliberate where you're, you're focusing particularly on that project itself. And then, you know, the time critical aspect of it in normal kind of project space is, you know, something, especially within the nuclear industry, uh, where something has to be reacted to very quickly um and how it covers all of those bases so yeah it's fascinating stuff and if we if we can just pick up on that because you've you've hit a point which i think is really important this and everybody on this uh podcast will know this there it's about the opportunity it's risk in its own right of course is an approach to um a barrier or multiple barriers that stops a hazard occurring mm -hmm. now in my case if i just finish off on that example of being shot down the hazard is being shot down the risk i can put barriers in place i might have training i might have countermeasure systems i might have a jamming system but the opportunity on the other side of that by by pushing into the hazard boundary i am achieving the mission i am reducing the threat to other people i might be um uh, uh, causing a confusion with the enemy that that causes me to then take advantage there is still an increased risk and this is the point the the hazard is closer to becoming a crystallized issue mm -hmm. but the opportunity could outweigh that risk and that's that whole point of where does the risk outweigh the potential beneficial outcome no fascinating point um as a small kind of side note really uh you know you've been in the position which and a lot of people probably haven't been of where you've had experiences within both the us and the uk military um did you find any any striking differences between the general approach to risk management between those two countries yes absolutely and indeed that's part of the reason why i probably rallied against the us system when i first got there um and this is the military system so operational risk management versus whatever was happening in their sort of uh, more general project and program space it felt clunky. It felt uh, very mechanistic. I felt much more liberal as a Brit going to the US, a um, bit more seat of the pants. It felt at the time as though that was what I was doing. And therefore, it, it felt uh, as though it was a system designed for rather, rather arrogantly, a lower common denominator. It felt as though it was in order for everybody to be included in this, 
and it's a much bigger flying service. And in fact, all of the US armed services are obviously a magnitude greater than ours. Uh, it felt as though it was being watered down to make sure that somebody not quite as good as me, you know, and this is the arrogance of, of youth, um, would, able to, would be able to cope. It was only when I started to become a classic, you know, poacher turned gamekeeper where I realized what was happening here. Um, and so it was a different approach. I now realize it was a better approach because I brought that back to the UK uh, and have in everything I've done uh, inculcated that into both my military life uh, from that point forward and indeed to some extent here within the nuclear sector, although I'm new into the nuclear sector. And as many will know out there, the hazard associated with entering a new sector from another one uh, is um, rejection by an organization that will just see me as an incomer. So you have to you have to take a bit more time. So risk mitigation strategies are very much in place to make sure that that's not the case. Did you find then when you came back from the US and um, you know back into the UK uh, Navy and and you know air, uh, airspace, did you find bringing back that ORM strategy and the, the the development of it that you've had with that? Did you find any kind of pushback from that, or did you find that people were a bit more um, happy to to go along with it and, and accept it? I would say probably a little bit of both. Um, I was It was really beneficial. When I came back from that first American exchange tour, I came back to a different aircraft type. At that stage, the Sea Harrier had gone out of service. And I came back to fly in a joint a joint Harrier force called Joint Force Harrier at Cottesmore in, in Rutland. And so I was joining as a Navy pilot into an Air Force system. And on our squadron, we had US Air Force and US Marine Corps exchange officers. Mm -hmm. So when I came back into a system that was already reeling from uh, what was at the time a defense review that had made these big decisions, which people were uncomfortable with and unhappy with, actually, I found that uh, where there is a little bit of chaos, there is significant opportunity to embed new thinking. Mm -hmm. So there's another, there's another interesting point. It's sometimes it's not good that everything is stable mm -hmm. because it's the it's the time when people are most likely to resist you because why would they change at that point? So actually having a little bit of turbulence gave us an opportunity to introduce some new thinking. And with my American colleagues, a small number, we were able to pretty much espouse a way of uh, doing things that, that wasn't a fundamental change to, to what was already being done, but it gave people more structure and allowed what for me is the most important thing in this is consistency. If you have a consistency in your approach to the tools that you apply, one, you learn, because if something doesn't quite work, you can question it. But if it's every time is seat of the pants, then there is no consistency and there is no way of assessing it. So this was a calmer, more measured, but still just as effective way to do the things that we'd always done but be able to work out how to get better in the future at it. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So having then taken this, this quite a shift in career, you know, from the, the military into the nuclear sector and being in an environment that typically focuses now on, on APM or IRM standards of risk management, uh, how do you feel ORM compares and, and are there different methodologies, are the different methodologies complementary? So I'm absolutely of the view that they are complementary. Okay. Um, uh, what I have talked about in terms of operational risk management, and one of the reasons I was so 
excited to have the opportunity to talk about it is there is of course a place and indeed has to be a place within the project and program space as the as the senior responsible owner of what of a mega project within a larger program mm -hmm. of activity there is no doubt that both within my program structure and indeed across the business of Sellafield Limited, there are multiple codependent uh, challenges that we have amongst those program areas that are linked to the other. It's not siloed thinking here. Um, so uh, in that respect, I think the, the, the first point is that ORM is still valid. I still believe that when we talk about risk management, what we're really saying is, let's do really, really well at identifying the hazards. Now, now many would say, well, that's part of the process, but I, it's just strange, isn't it? What's in a name? I, I still, in my mind, approach risk management as hazard identification. Mm -hmm. And then I can work out what my mitigation strategies are, because it's the, it's the first thing you do. It's the first two parts of the risk mitigation strategy is to is to identify and analyze. You know, it's it's... It seems strange in a way that we've, it's not strange, it's it's just a title, but I approach it as hazard identification as opposed to starting as a risk management strategy. I know it is risk management. I do understand that. I'm not trying to be a complete renegade, mm -hmm. but my approach is hazard first mm -hmm. and then on to what are the strategies and the barriers that you can put in place. Um, there's, a, there's a process that many of your listeners will be aware of, uh, bow tie methodology. Uh, was one again that the UK military rallied against to start with because we didn't really have the induction that we should have done. It's a powerful tool. Uh, the bow tie concept, imagine a bow tie, and in the center of that is the hazard. The bit on the right-hand side is where you don't want to get to, but you still need to be able to deal with what happens if the hazard materializes. Mm -hmm. So you still have to have processes in place. It's everything to the left of the center of the bow tie that's the most important bit. But it's only valid if you know what the hazard is and you've properly identified that hazard. I know I keep banging the drum on this one. Um, uh, and I'm sure I'll get some feedback that um, says, yeah, we know all this. But, but for me, it was it was central. It's about the hazard is at the center. Everything else is the mitigation strategy on that risks on the risk management strategy. It's something that I think I've, I've come across. I mean, I'm still relatively new in the world of risk and, um, you know, finding my way with it with within client space. But one thing I have found is is getting to the core of what is the risk what is the hazard as you mentioned yeah um is probably one of the hardest bits to do but once you've got that i think it's it's much easier then to to work around it find the causes determining what is a cause instead of a risk or what is a, an impact instead yeah. of the risk um it's it's a bit of a a uh, bit of a balance and a bit of trial and error sometimes but once you get into the flow of it it does make a big difference in terms of general risk um it identification. does and I think the one thing that um, uh, in the military planning process, so there's a, there's a the military planning process is called the estimate process. Uh, and there used to be a standard um, tag called question four. Question four in the military planning estimate process is so what? Mm -hmm. So if you say my, uh, my, my hazard is, uh, the supply chain failing to deliver on time. So what? What happens now? If you, until you've done until you've done the so what's and actually work out what your hazard is, mm -hmm. then what you're actually describing is, is is you're identifying hazards when when they're actually parts of the they're sort of the symptomatic side, not the causal side. And I think that's the point that you're making, which I 
violently agree with that what we've <laughs> often do when you look at risk when you look at risk registers what we're not doing is mitigating the actual hazard they're on the way to something that has yet to be properly identified because nobody's done the so what so what so what mm -hmm. and i think that's a really important part of the process yeah, it's definitely something I think everyone should try and take away from this if they can do. Um, so kind of we'll start to, to wrap things up a little bit. Um, if you were to try and give some advice to risk or project management professionals listening uh, about how ORM can help them to get the most out of their risk management processes or practices uh, in their day-to-day -day operations, what, what would you say to them? Um, two in short, one, and we've, we've touched on it quite a lot, make sure you understand what the actual hazard is that you are employing your risk mitigation strategies against, the barriers against. And the second would be empower your people in your workforce to make the decisions at the right level in the right time. If you are erring and you're in businesses that do have those time critical challenges, then you, you will probably have a belief already that those people need to be empowered to do it. But I wonder if we can challenge ourselves in businesses that don't necessarily have immediate time critical challenges. You should still allow people to be part of a process that helps them make the decision, the empowered people making the decision. Whilst you might check it and have a discussion because there's learning for everybody. Often in businesses that do not have time critical requirements, a committee is formed, a working group is formed, then it gets passed to another committee and then somebody passes it up and eventually it gets onto the desk of a busy person who doesn't really understand the issue in the level that you've done. Mm -hmm. um, you've had 15 people all sort of tagging it, which means nobody can actually be identified as the person that, that is trying to make a decision. And eventually a decision is made, which might not necessarily be the most effective one in the swiftest time. So to, to sort of I rumbled a little bit on that the second one, but I found it's quite important. Mm -hmm. One, make sure you've identified what is actually a hazard. I challenge you to all go and look at your risk registers now and say, do I actually know what my hazard is? And if it's if you do, fantastic. But the second one, empower your people to help make decisions at the right time. Fantastic advice as always, Aid. Um and speaking of advice, really, we're kind of coming towards the end of the podcast, but you know, our regular listeners will know uh, that at the end of the podcast, we always uh, ask our guests this same question, which was, if you could give yourself one piece of advice at the start of your career that you've maybe picked up along the way, what would it be? Very straightforward. There are as many opportunities in hazardous scenarios as there are risks. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really straightforward for me. Uh, we We do everything we can to understand what the hazard is and what, therefore what we put in terms of uh, barriers to, to, to stop that hazard materializing. But others far wiser than me have also written that we must remember that the very nature, other than catastrophic hazard, you know, we don't want oil refiners to explode, but other hazards can, can provide opportunities, some of which we don't even know exist yet. So I think for me, it's, it's understanding that there is opportunity in the way we do risk management that is uh, well understood by everybody listening to this. But again, I wonder whether we focus much more on the left-hand side of the bow tie, the things that stop the hazard, as opposed to thinking about what happens if that hazard becomes a crystallized issue and therefore what can we take opportunity from? Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic. Um, so really that kind of brings us towards the end of the podcast day. So it just leaves it for me to thank you very much for your time uh, in the build up to today and obviously recording this now. Um, 
for your advice and your insight into into everything and all your experiences, which I think are just invaluable. And, and hopefully everyone today will really take something away from it. Um, if any of our listeners would uh, like to contact you regarding what we've discussed in this episode or to take anything obviously further, uh, how are they best getting in contact with you? LinkedIn is probably the easiest. You'll, you'll find me under Adrian Orchard. You can type in senior responsible owner after Adrian Orchard and you'll definitely uh, find my ugly mug staring at you out of my LinkedIn profile. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Aid. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, for everybody listening, uh, thanks for joining us and stay tuned for another episode coming soon. Well, that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode of Riskologist, please make sure to follow Optimize on our social media platforms where you can subscribe to this podcast, be notified of the latest releases and help us broaden our reach to the wider risk community. You can also find the full back catalogue from season one where we've interviewed some of the discipline's most renowned thought leaders around the industry's most pressing topics. If you'd like to get in touch, either as a future guest or with any subject suggestions you'd like to hear covered, please contact us using the address in the podcast notes below. And please join us next time, where we'll be hearing the thoughts of another key decision maker and their experiences with risk management. Until then, thanks for listening and take care.